Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 9th, 2020. In today's podcast, Invasive Testing, CVS, and Amniocentesis, Dr. Andre Rebarber and I discuss the options for invasive testing, what they entail, and why someone might choose to undergo one of these procedures. This is the fourth and final podcast in our prenatal genetics miniseries. I hope you've enjoyed it. Personally, I really appreciated having the opportunity to discuss these topics at length, and I hope women are able to use these podcasts to help them better understand and make decisions about genetic testing in pregnancy. Next week, we shift gears and start another miniseries titled, When Bad Things Happen in Pregnancy. I like to tell people that most of the time, pregnancy, and even high-risk pregnancy, ends well with a happy outcome. But unfortunately, not always. In this upcoming miniseries, we're going to be discussing difficult topics such as pregnancy loss, stillbirth, critical care, and maternal mortality. However, we're approaching these topics by speaking to remarkable women who devote their time to either preventing these difficult outcomes or helping women through them. So that starts next week. For now, I hope you enjoy the final podcast on prenatal genetics with Andre Rebarber. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're here with Dr. Andre Rebarber, maternal fetal medicine specialist and my life partner, <laughs> maternal fetal medicine associates. Andre, welcome. How you doing? Good. Great. Nice to be here, Nate. It's amazing that it's taken this long to get you on the podcast, but I realize that you and I are both never off at the same time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Whenever you're here, I'm somewhere else working. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's important. So we're going to talk today about invasive genetic testing. This is part of our mini series on genetic and pregnancy in general. So just so our, our listeners understand, what, what exactly is invasive genetic testing? That sounds pretty scary. Right. So invasive testing comprises of any test that has really a needle and that punctures the skin and gets a sample of whether it's fluid or tissue, that's called invasive testing. Right. But we don't refer to it like if the mom gets a, a blood draw, that's not, a, we don't call that invasive testing. Correct. Right. right. So it has to go into the uterus, into the right. baby. Right. Right. And then the, the other term for it would be diagnostic testing. And that's not so much because of how it's done, but what it's meant to do. Uh, and those are one of the things that Tamara and I were discussing, the differences between screening and diagnostic testing. Right. It just it basically is a reflection of the accuracy of the test. A diagnostic test in general is a test that is able to diagnose a problem, whereas screening tests suggest risk. And so the test, an invasive test, is very specific and very sensitive, obviously, because then therefore it's a diagnostic test, whereas a screening test may have, be sensitive to be able to pick up patients that might have a problem, but it's not always very specific to the disease. And that's the difference mostly. Right. So, I mean, like, and, and the result that you would get from an invasive or diagnostic test basically say yes or no. Like, you're, you know, the tip of your baby does or doesn't have this condition from what we got, whereas a screening test says your baby's at higher risk, you know, maybe exactly what the risk is and quantified, but it doesn't give you a yes or no answer. Though some of these invasive tests, right. depending <laughs> on the test that you are sending can give you confusing results, right. which uh, we can have that conversation as it goes right. on. But therein lies the problem with some of these tests, particularly when you're dealing with fetal diagnostic testing, 
that sometimes it can give you a straight answer and sometimes it may not. And that's why patients should be counseled about what testing information, what do you want, what type of test do you want to be sent in the sense, and what information would you like to have? Because some of it can end up being confusing. Right. So in terms of if someone has made a decision that they want to do or they're considering doing, you know, diagnostic or evasive testing, so what are the options in pregnancy for them? So they basically are three options, essentially. There's CVS, where you can actually sample from the placenta, and that can be done two ways, and that's why I said there are three options. That can be done transvaginal CVS, in which a catheter, a little tube, is placed through the cervix and biopsies the placenta. There's no needle to that technique, so it's actually generally doesn't hurt very much. The transabdominal CVS, where you actually stick a needle into the placenta through the abdomen and then get a sample of the placental tissue. And then there's the amniocentesis in which there's only one way to do that, and that's the transabdominal technique where you stick a needle into the sac and get fluid out and send that for sample. There are fetal sampling techniques that are no longer done where we can either do a fetal blood sample or fetal biopsy of the muscle or tissue of varying types, but no one's really doing those things anymore. That's more historical. Right. And and, and sometimes we do fetal blood sampling, but not for genetic testing. That's, very, and that's very rare. And that's from a different very circumstance. Rare. It used to be more popular right. about 10, 15 years ago. Right. And in terms of CVS, uh, so CVS stands for, it's like the you know pharmacy CVS, but it stands for chorionic villus sampling because the chorionic villus basically is a fancy word for placental, placental. tissue. Exactly. And and the, the premise behind it is that the, the genes inside the placenta, the DNA the placenta matches the babies, which is not true 100% of the time. We'll get into that, but it's it's mostly true, Correct. Uh, like 99% they, they of the time. all originally, so the tissue, whatever's in the uterus, all started from that one cell that was fertilized, that one egg fertilized by the sperm. And then at some point, they kind of started to, at a certain stage in cellular development, decided I'll be the placenta and I'll be the baby cells and then so on. And at that, but they all originally started from the same genetic cell. Right. So in terms of these procedures, just in terms of, you know, the history, when when did when did we start doing these procedures? So it depends how you suggest old or new. Relatively, it became in the 80s or when CVS really starts to become available. But really, it was only a couple of centers throughout the United States that even did that. It first gets popularized in Europe as far as CVS, Italy, one of the more the places that had the larger experience. In fact, they were doing these procedures throughout the 80s and 90s in Italy as early as six weeks or so, seven weeks. We in the United States, there were a couple of centers, maybe three or four that were doing them, but they generally were doing them at, at about nine, 10 weeks or later, gestation to diagnose the any kind of problems. Particularly, most of the time it was reserved for patients who were known carriers for recessive conditions. And so they had a child that was affected, let's say, with cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs, and they wanted to get early diagnosis because they knew they had a one in four chance of an affected offspring. So that was the routine beginning of CVS for known very high risk conditions, not just for not generally for Down syndrome, then it be kind of becomes a test that's available for Down syndrome. And then they had some problems in the 90s because they found out that if you did your CVS too early, you can cause problems for the fetus, what they called limb reduction defects. And that association was with very early CVSs under nine weeks, somewhere between six to nine weeks gestation. It, it seemed to increase the risk. 
And so for a while, they put a moratorium on CVSs. It became less popular. There were a lot fewer people actually trained to do the procedure. Uh, and then until they figured out that it was actually quite safe to do the procedure and it doesn't increase the risk for limb reduction defects, and that then it becomes more popular really after 2000, 2001 or so. And by then it starts to become more popular again, but you had fewer people doing it. And still, in the United States, the majority of actually maternal fetal medicine specialists don't do CVSs and only a select few feel confident and comfortable enough and have the training to do those. Right. And so, and, and why is that? I think it has to do with the availability in as much as the request to sort of supply and demand, because in certain parts of the United States, there's just not a lot of demand for early or testing at all. And so it, regionally, you're talking about East Coast and West Coast, some of the major cities where you have requests for invasive testing. But outside of that, a lot of places just don't do invasive testing because the patients don't want to do any type of testing, and invasive testing, I mean. And so therefore, they don't have the uh, enough volume, actually, to be confident or confident to do it. It is technically challenging, meaning it, you know, to, to come and not know anything and to just do one is not that easy. But once you get trained, it's not you know that confusing, that hard to do. I mean, people learn how to do much more complicated operations you know, during the sure. residency and their fellowship. A CVS is not that you know difficult to do, but since it's so rare, a lot of people just don't feel comfortable doing it because they said I've only done a handful and I don't, you know, and also everyone's worried. What if there's a complication? We're talking, you know, machine miscarries. It would just be really horrible. So people there's, are afraid. There's data to suggest that you need to have a certain number of them completed for you to kind of have a lower complication rate to and traditionally what's quoted an under 1% complication rate, one in 300, one in 400, but you need to have at least somewhere between 50 to 100 CVSs done. And then additionally, there has to be some kind of maintenance where on a regular basis, you consistently do these procedures because otherwise, like anything else, if you had done a lot of them in your training, let's say, and then all of a sudden, five years out as an attending, and you haven't done them since then, or have only done one or two, particularly some of the ones that, where the placenta might be located technically more challenging, you know, it does require a certain level of expertise and knowledge and understanding. Right. But many, many more MFMs and even OBGYNs are proficient in doing an amniocentesis. Correct. And, and why, why is it easier for them? I think there's a larger, the placenta is a smaller target, particularly at early gestations. Its location, particularly if it's in posterior in the back, can be more challenging. Whereas the amniotic fluid, it's sort of all around. It's larger. Most of them are done at 16 to 18 weeks. Harder to miss. So it's harder to miss, essentially, yeah. technically. But also, it, it is an amniocentesis are done by a maternal fetal medicine specialist and general OBGYN. So I think it's right. just a matter of regional sort of comfort where doctors, some doctors do, some doctors just do a lot of them and some don't. But amniocentesis is an older procedure, actually, it predates CVS. CVS is relatively new on the scene and it allows for earlier diagnosis because you're doing it somewhere between 10 to 12 weeks or so. Results somewhere take somewhere between seven to 10 days to get back for your standard chromosome analysis. So you're under really 13, 14 weeks in the first trimester when you're getting your information, whereas an amniocentesis is normally done at 16 to 18 weeks, takes two weeks to get your results back. So it takes a little longer to grow the cells in culture for the standard chromosome analysis. And so amnios were done earlier. And the, the interesting thing is, you know, when, when we train, we do these procedures as they're called ultrasound guided, which is in real time. We're using an ultrasound, which is, you know, live imaging, and we see the needle in every step where that tip is going, you know, from her skin all the way down into the uterus. And so we know where to guide it, essentially, into either the amniotic fluid or to the placenta. But when they started doing amnios, 
they just did them. In looking at sort of the history of amniocentesis, people were doing them even in the 1930s, but as, as sort of the beginning of that, but for different indications, not genetic, but for what we call therapeutic amniocentesis. So sometimes the woman in the womb, there's just too much fluid and she can't breathe and it's quite large, something called polyhydramnios. So people were doing it therapeutically to allow the decompress the uterus and it was blindly done. But by the 1960s or so, when they could actually do genetics and chromosome analysis, they start doing amniocentesis for genetic diagnostic testing by the mid late 60s or so. But it was all blind until really, really it starts in the mid 80s or so where you have ultrasound guided amniocentesis becoming more mainstream. And even at the beginning of my residency, there were a lot of doctors where they were doing these procedures in their office themselves, and they would actually, to assure the patient that they knew where they were going, they would send the patient to a radiologist, because there were very few maternal fetal medicine specialists back in the late 80s, early 90s, and so the radiologist would mark an X where there was a fluid pocket, assuming the baby didn't move. And then the patient would go to the doctor's office and they would kind of feel around and blindly stick in. And that was it. And right. so people still did that. More complications. Actually, the data shows blind uh, sticking. You had higher loss rates and more sticks because yeah. you had, they used to call dry taps. So you didn't know what you hit or where you were, <laughs> but you weren't getting any fluid out. Right. And so that was called dry taps. And so you would stick again and do multiple sticks. It's rare now because since everything is ultrasound guided in real time, that you're going to even need more than one stick. It's hard to imagine why that X system didn't work. It's like going into, you know, a kindergarten and, you know, putting an X on the floor of where a kid is. And then 45 minutes later saying, all right, that's where the kid's going to be. Exactly. It's essentially right. no chance Fetuses whatsoever. don't listen. Yeah. Just like ch kids don't listen. So it was sort of like uh, the Luke Skywalker approach where you feel yeah. the force and yeah. you just go with it. And that, that was it. Right. So nowadays it's all real-time ultrasound, uh, both for CVS, whether abdominal or vaginal and for amniocentesis. And again, like we said, the, the people who might choose to do it, again, there's there's a lot of reasons. One might be that they did do screening and it was abnormal, right? Or there's a concern that the, there is an increased risk for genetic condition. And then they want to find out, number one, is that true or not true? And number two, which condition, right? Because that can affect potentially how they manage the pregnancy, could potentially affect where they deliver, or you know, there's a lot of impact that might have so they can wrap their heads around it. Right. I mean, what you have now that's it's standard, I think there's a lot of what we call genetic testing out there. So you really start out either preconception or at the first obstetrical visit being offered for most patients some type of recessive carrier screening. And that implies that if you're a carrier for a particular condition, like we had talked about Tay-Sachs or cystic fibrosis and so on, and now most panels are in the 200 to 300 volume of checking for disease carrier status, genetic mutations that you might be a carrier, you would be silent, you have no symptoms of that, you wouldn't know you have it, you wouldn't know for generations that it's been passed down. And there, then somehow your partner who is not tested also is carrier for exactly the same condition. So you have both, if you find out you're a carrier, they would test your spouse if they're positive also for the exact same condition, then that implies about a 25% risk for that condition to occur. And in that setting, those type of recessive carrier traits, then depending on the condition, people would consider doing invasive testing to do to diagnose if the fetus ended up having it, which is a 25% chance. 
This is sort of a basic, what we call Mendelian inheritance and genetics from anybody who did biology in high school. The Punnett Square. Punnett Square and, you know, the peas in the pod and all that right. kind of stuff. <laughs> so that's one. Now, then you get into spontaneous or what we call de novo mutations. Now, and these occur whether you have like things like Down syndrome, where there's an extra chromosome that comes across during actual conception itself or at the time, not during conception, but right before it with the sperm or the egg carrying an extra one. And in that setting, that's what you're testing for a new novel mutation. So some people would do invasive testing directly, or they would do some kind of screening test to look for that. And there's blood tests or ultrasound that screens for things like Down syndrome. If you screen positive, then you would go to invasive testing. If you screen negative, some people don't. But some people would rather not do the screening test since they're not 100% or perfect and go directly to invasive testing for that purpose. And then finally, there's the group of patients where you find an abnormality or problem on ultrasound. Let's say that the nuchal translucency is very thick as a marker of risk for chromosomal problem. Or on the anatomy scan, you find that there's a heart defect or something, and then patients would get invasive testing because there's a structural problem. There's something there. Then you want to look for other genetic syndromes. Right. And most recently, the final newest thing is where they where people are looking for the actual gene sequence itself and whether they're talking about a, a microarray abnormality where they're looking at chunks of DNA missing for various genetic syndromes, where individually these are all rare, but as an aggregate can occur about one percent of the population as de novo mutations or new mutations, or the pie in the sky is going to be to do full sequencing of the genome, and people may want to do that. But that's going to open up a lot of can of worms, right. as a lot of these other tests do. The way to sort of conceptualize, because a lot of people have a hard time making this decision about whether they want to do an invasive testing or not. And I sort of break it down for them, like you said, into categories. You know, one category is, all right, you know you're at risk, you know, 25% of having a baby with a certain genetic condition, and do you want to test for it? So that's sort of like one bucket. Another one is, you know, you did some screen, and your risk has increased and you want to find out, you know, what's going on. So that's the second bucket. And those are, you know, pretty common amongst people who have testing. You know, the third is just, you know, simple reassurance. Some people are just, they don't buy numbers. They don't like hearing numbers. They don't like odds. They just want to know, like, just give me a yes or no. I just want to know a story, you know, that I can rely on 100%. And the only way really to do that is an invasive test. And, you know, we'll talk about the risks. There are some, but they're very low. Right. So for many people, like, I'm okay with that low risk so I can sleep at night. Like, I need a yes or no answer so I can go to bed at night feeling relaxed. Plus, also, the screening tests that we do, or even the ultrasounds that we do, the ultrasound that looks at the anatomy, they're just screening tests. Right. They're not one, the sensitivity or the sort of the, is it 100% if I tell you the heart is normal in ultrasound? It's not 100% because there's a misrate to right. what you can diagnose or what you can see, even a pediatric cardiologist looking at the fetal heart does have a misrate for certain types of problems, not major, but certain types that could be associated with syndrome. So some people want to know because they're looking for as much reassurance as right. is possible for all things that we can test for. And right. then therefore invasive testing is the right. only way to know for sure. And also it can test for more things right. than any screening test can right. test for. So yeah. some people want that. And I don't think people have to understand that just visually, sometimes it's so powerful that they see the fetus and with 3D that everything looks normal. But that's really just one facet of things that we can reassure you about. But genetics is expanding so rapidly that we're going to be able to tell a lot more things for what gene certain genetic syndromes and things that can go wrong. 
And is it, do you want to know this information? And, you know, sometimes this information is useful for preparation. Sometimes this information is useful for early intervention and early treatments. And so there's a lot of advantages to knowing some of this stuff. You know, they do the newborn screening to look for certain genetic conditions like PKU, for example, but we should be able to diagnose that prenatally on everybody. And so there wouldn't be a need for a newborn screen for any of these conditions or they do hearing tests, but we have genes for hearing loss that we could identify that we couldn't know, you know, unless you did a genetic testing. So again, knowing that you would get early intervention and, you know, early treatments for some of these conditions. And so the invasive testing approach isn't just a mission to identify a problem and then stop a pregnancy, but it's really to provide people information to where and how to get the best treatment, who are the best doctors. And I think that really helps people to cope with the situation much better, gives them time to read about stuff and the shock value of knowing some of these things or the delay in diagnosis. Right. Some people don't find out about some of these things until the child's two, three years old. Right. Because they wouldn't You missed know. an opportunity. And I, I think that a lot of people don't realize that about invasive testing and even doctors. It's that when we do the screening test, the blood test, the ultrasound, even if they were perfect, which they're not, but even if they were, they're only perfect for a handful of conditions, right? So let's say you found a screening test that were 100% for Down syndrome. You could say, okay, the baby doesn't have Down syndrome. Again, the tests aren't 100%, they're let's say 99%, but there's so many other issues. And most people don't want to think about that, right? Down syndrome is the most famous one, and it's more common as women get older, but there's so many other conditions out there that we can diagnose. And so it's really just boils down to a question of, do you want as much information as possible before birth, or do you not want as much information possible before birth? And if you do, are you willing to take the risk of the procedure to get that information? And when people say, oh, my, my screening tests were normal, my baby's fine. Well, you know, probably, yeah, I agree. And every, you know, it should be positive, but there's that, whatever it is, 1%, half a percent chance that the baby's not fine. And the question is, do you want to know about that before delivery? Do you not want to know about that before delivery? And, and people feel differently about that, but they have to know that that's what we're right. talking I about. I mean, I think we have to talk about probabilities as I'm yeah. always reminded in yeah. of what we do, obstetrics, that most things are normal and everything generally works out okay. And we're the like looking for the just in case we're right. sort of the one to two percent that we're looking for so for all the listeners out there who are listening it's really important to remember that overwhelmingly the system works well and we are looking for a very small percentage of time when things go to be a problem but if you notice in our whole discussion we haven't talked about age as a factor at all right and i think that's a really important issue that it isn't just it isn't about the age anymore right and that's kind of a leftover phenomenon of the 1980s where people were forced or told they had to do amniocentesis because they were over 35 and those that were under got no testing done because I got nothing. Someone, <laughs> right. They got nothing done. And that really had to do with the fact that at that time, the risk of the procedure and the risk of finding Down syndrome were sort of equal at the age of 35. So when they did that mathematical sort of crossover calculation, they said, okay, so that's when we're going to recommend it because the risk of an amniocentesis in the 1980s was equal to the risk of finding Down syndrome of a, in a 35-year-old because as a woman gets older, there's an increased risk for Down syndrome. And that was a simple equation. That no longer holds because if we would apply the same logic, the risk of the procedure is so much safer right. that that crossover would occur in somebody at 25. Right. But no one talks about that. Right. And, so, and also the screening tests lower someone's risk so it's not that of a 35-year-old anymore. Correct. Yeah. And, and for a lot of these other genetic conditions we're talking about, 
they're not age dependent. Yeah. They yeah. occur and they're random errors that occur at the time of conception or egg or sperm bringing it together. But these are not necessarily age dependent events. And so I think people, we're getting away from age as an indication. And in fact, the American College of OBGYN very clearly recommends in their guidelines that everybody should be offered regardless of age, invasive testing versus right. non-invasive screening, and to be explained what are the limitations of each of those approaches in the sense of information you can get and options that you have available. Yeah, and that is important because people say, well, I don't need to do an amnio because I'm 28. Well, you don't need to do an amnio even if you're 48. It's whether you want to do it. And it's just about what is your risk. And again, these conditions that we can test for have really nothing to do with age. The decision at 28 mathematically is the same as 38 or 48. Sometimes people have a different perspective on life at different ages, obviously, and they feel they just think differently, but mathematically it's the same. So let's say someone decides they're they're gonna do an invasive test, just so our listeners understand how are they done technically. So I mean, let's go like start to finish. Someone's coming in and they're planning. We'll start, I guess, with an abdominal CVS. So they're coming in, they're somewhere between, like you said, 10 and 12, 10 and 13 weeks. They come in. What happens? So normally they get go into the ultrasound room and the sonographer tells them to lie down. They're going to put gel on their belly and they scan them transabdominally. And they look at the location of the fetus, the placenta, the uh, uterus and how it's positioned into in the pelvic cavity. And at that point, they'll step outside if they're coming knowing for a CVS and they'll, you know, confer with the physician and the physician will determine based on the pictures what route they're going to take, whether it's transvaginal, transabdominal, if the doctor is comfortable to do both. Right. Some doctors only comfortable to do one or the other, and they'll choose that. Or they'll just say they can't do it with one approach or the other because of that. And basically, that that's the first step. The second step, the doctor comes in. And usually, it really depends on the physician. Some doctors will guide themselves. Some doctors use a sonographer to guide them. When you say guide, you mean hold the hold ultrasound, ultrasound probe, probe themselves. Right. right. And the doctor holds onto the needle. Some doctors will hold both and then guide themselves to where they want to be. And then the needle goes in through the well, abdomen. Before the needle goes in, there's things that happen. Well, we yeah. prep and sterilize the <laughs> yeah. abdomen. and We, <laughs> we don't just steril- walk in and stick a needle in your belly. Correct. We, hey, we find the location. We sterilize the abdomen. Yeah. And then we... We cover the probe. We put on gloves. Correct. You know, we're, right. we're looking. Okay. So the, the needle goes in and we're guiding the needle tip into the placenta. Right. Generally, from when the needle goes through the skin to the placenta is few seconds yeah it's pretty it's pretty quick and then the whole procedure should be somewhere between i guess two minutes to three minutes at most right it's rarely longer than that sometimes you may have the uterus contract or have the patient moves a little bit and that that shifts and orients things but overall uh in general it's a two to three minute procedure it's more the cvs is actually more painful than Mm -hmm. the amniocentesis because even once the needle's in, you actually have to move the needle up and down for about 30 seconds in different passes through the placenta to aspirate the cells into the syringe. Right. It's like a biopsy, basically. Exactly. Whereas, and if you're using a larger gauge needle, some something like an 18 gauge needle, yeah. which is a little thicker, the smaller the number, the thicker the needle. Whereas with an amniocentesis, we often use a 22 gauge or a thinner needle. Right. Um, and we don't move around once it's into right. the sac. Also, the uterus is a little bit thicker. When right. you're doing a, a CVS, so it's it's the uterus is a little bit thicker, the needle is a little bit bigger. By bigger, we mean wider, like you said, thicker. The length of the needle doesn't affect the pain. It's more so how wide it is, again, because we have to move it. So it does hurt one degree more than the amnio. But conceptually, if you walked into a room, you wouldn't really be able to tell 
if they're doing a CVS or an amniocentesis, they look very similar right. from the outsider right. and from the patient's perspective. That's the abdominal approach. Yeah. If you do the vaginal approach, mm -hmm. it really should be very similar to a pap smear, essentially, mm -hmm. because you're really not touching the cervix in the sense you prep the outside of the vagina with betadine, then you put a speculum in, you prep inside vaginally with betadine, and then you pass a catheter, which is basically like a little straw under ultrasound guidance. And this one, the ultrasound guidance really is done by the sonographer because your hands are sterile and you basically pass right. and you the need both of them. and you need both <laughs> of them. And then you attach the syringe to the catheter and aspirate out. There's no needles. Usually it's actually rather painless. The problem with the vaginal approach is that there was, there's a little bit of a high risk for bleeding. And so some people get more nervous with that. And there was some data that associated possibly an increased risk for infection with the vaginal approach, but most recent data doesn't support that. So that's why some people just prefer the abdominal approach versus the vaginal approach. Um, but both are quite safe and both are actually similar. Uh, and in my experience, they're actually similar in risk uh, if you choose the right cases and know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, for the, the vaginal approach, the upside is there's less pain, obviously. Again, this is if they're both technically possible. If only one of them is technically possible, really, there's not much of a choice. But and the abdominal approach advantage is, you know, for women, they don't have to undress. They don't have to have a speculum placed inside the vagina. And, and there's there's probably fewer women who bleed after an abdominal CVS and vaginal. But bleeding is just, you know, sort of worrying. It doesn't mean they have a higher chance right. of miscarrying. Just, you know, right. it's, it's concerning to bleed after a procedure. Now, some people for the abdominal approach, they will use local anesthetic, whether they spray on anesthetic like and to numb the skin, to numb the skin and so on. But the greatest discomfort from the procedure is actually at the uterine level because right. the muscle tightens around the needle. And that's where people feel cramps and pain. And you can't numb that because that would go directly to the fetus. So right. in general, while there's some people that do that, it actually, I always found that people have had the same, if not more sensation of pain, because when you inject local anesthesia, it actually burns in the area. Yeah. So you have the needle stick, the burn, and then the stick doesn't hurt. But then the second, when you go to the uterus, it starts to hurt anyway, because right. you've gone through. So you're at the same similar amount of two-tiered level of pain that you would have, whether you use anesthesia or not, if you're doing single stick. If you end up doing multiple sticks and so on, that's when anesthesia may be, may be beneficial, but it's right. pretty rare these days that anybody with who's skilled does more than one stick for right. at least. And, and also sometimes, you know, you, you put in a local anesthesia and then like something shifts a little bit and you realize actually I have to put my needle in somewhere right. else. And right. Like, Oops. <laughs> and I have to numb up another spot. And so, yeah, I, I you know, we don't use it in, in our unit um, generally. And so, that's how a CVS goes. And an amniocentesis is essentially from the, the patient's perspective, the same thing as a CVS. She'll come in, have the ultrasound, you know, we'll look and we'll prep the belly and put the needle through her belly. Again, it hurts a little bit less because it's a thinner needle and the uterus, you know, it goes in. And the difference though is when the amnio is in, people don't realize the, the needle has to stay in the amniotic fluid for some time because when we use a skinny needle, the advantage is it hurts less, but the disadvantage is it, it takes a little more time to get the fluid out because it doesn't just flow as, as easily. So right. it's usually in for about a minute or so inside the uterus. And people get very worried that we're going to put the needle in the baby. They always ask, are you going to stick the baby? You're going to stick the baby. And why, why are we, you know, why should people not worry about that? Well, there's actually the greatest danger is the needle actually hitting the umbilical cord more than actually the right. baby. There are techniques and procedures we do to actually stick the baby mm -hmm. in utero on purpose, whether sometimes doing in utero shunts or drainage of cysts in the fetal abdomen, or people do fetal surgery where they operate on closing the spine. 
And what's interesting about the fetus is they actually heal without without scarring, essentially. So there really is no, there's very little danger per se to sticking the baby if you know where you're at in the sense of just a gentle touch or if the baby kind of brushes up against the tip of the needle in the sense of harm or any kind of long-term problem. So yeah, again, in the old days, there were rather rare case reports of multiple sticks and injuries and things of that sort, but that's because they were going, you know, they didn't know where they were. Right. It might have hit certain areas of the fetal face, eye, or, you know, right. intracranial anatomy that we're not going to be going near, obviously, because right. we know what we're doing. But we're talking about just light touches or bumps against the needle. And so you always keep a view of the needle when you're doing it. And yeah, the, the baby is not going to get harmed by that at all. Uh, and also, it, the sharp part of the needle, that what we call right. the stylet, comes right out at, once you're in the sack. And all you have is a blunt tip at the, that basically is just a tube that you're just aspirating fluid out. Which takes, that takes about two minutes or so, particularly if you're using a 22 gauge needle, because you're taking out about somewhere between 20 to 30 mLs or cc's of fluid. Because per mL, even though there's a lot of cells that come off, the actual cells that they can grow is a very small proportion of all the cells. They have lung cells, they have bladder cells, they have actually skin cells, they have cells from off the placenta that are in the fluid, but you're trying to grow cells and cells that actually will grow in culture to what we call cloning. They actually have, most of them don't actually grow. And so you need a large amount of volume to make sure that you have enough sample of cells that would actually be able to grow in culture. Right. The cells are floating in the fluid. And then what they do in the lab is they put them on like a, like a dish, an agar dish and get them to grow and divide. And then when they're dividing, they can look at the chromosomes because they sort of light up. And what you're saying about the needle is so true. I mean, Number one, we're looking at the needle the whole time or we're looking at the baby. And occasionally it's sort of like a video game to, you know, the baby moves, you move the needle, do this. But usually if the baby's going to touch the needle, they're going to touch sort of the long part of it, which is fine. That's not sharp. And I, I tell patients, you know, not to worry about it. And I say, if the needle, you know, the baby gets stuck by the needle, the, you know, baby bumps into the needle. At, at worst, it's just like a faux pas. Like, you know, we'd prefer it not happen, but no one thinks it's going to damage the baby or hurt the baby. And it, it's, it's really not a major concern because we see where we're going, right? The needle's not going to end up in an organ in the baby. Like we see exactly the main area you want to yeah. avoid are cord insertion sites yeah. into the placenta or the cord insertion site into the fetal abdomen. Because then if you end up going in there, you're actually doing a much harder technique, yeah. which is called a fetal blood sample, <laughs> right. which is not something you want to do at the time of an amnio, but can be at certain other times. Right. To do. These procedures are quite safe. And actually the newest data on statistics on safety yeah. of these things are, are showing they're actually in skilled hands, um, well under 1% complication rate. Some studies show under one in a thousand. Right. In fact, it's interesting that if you look at one trial, they actually showed that an amniocentesis actually was protective, had lower risk. But right. again, part of the problem with that study was it was already a pre-screened population. So they had a lower risk than the general background risk of miscarriage, but they were already screened population with all normal right. anatomy, normal right. nuchal, and then they had their amnio. So of course, their rate right. of miscarriage post whatever you did to them was right. much lower than the general right. population risk because they right. already were pre-screened. But it was kind of a funny study because it suggested that the doing the amniocentesis was protective. It lowered right. the risk of a miscarriage. Right. And I think in talking about risk, it's one of the, it, it's an important point because there's two big questions that come up, but what is the risk of the procedure? Actually three questions. What's the risk of the procedure? How do you compare the risk of CVS to amnio? And what is your risk? Like you, the doctor, and we'll, address the last one after. But one of the reasons it's it's hard to say for sure is, you know, the only way to know for certain 
right? What is the risk of miscarriage? And that's what we're talking about. Let's say for a CVS is you have to take many, many women, let's say 10,000 women, randomly divide them into two groups. You know, you're in group A, you're in group B. Do a CVS on everybody in group A, no matter what, whether they want one or not, just do one and do no CVSs on the group B, whether they want one or not, and see how many people miscarry in each group. That's the only way from a research perspective to really identify what is the risk of a CVS versus not doing CVS. Now, that's obviously not going to be done. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, not, that's not an option. I mean, these are what they call yeah. these prospective yeah. randomized controlled trials, yeah. and that just can't happen, right. I mean, yeah. ethically, morally, and so on. But I think we have pretty good data from right. large series right. that were published, which include thousands on CVSs from some from the Italian groups as well as on amnios that suggest retrospectively and right. in the people who chose to do these procedures right. whether it was indicated medically or elective and and some people will use how many loss rates are described differently right some within two weeks or then with, four weeks within or then eight four weeks, weeks up yeah. to getting to viability at 24 right. weeks or live birth and right. so that's a really complicated another right. sort of footnote in in the numbers that they're right. using but overall, most people sort of suggest that, you know, the numbers that we quote are within four weeks of the procedure right. to be on the safe side, even though biologically we think the membranes where you punctured or the CVS area should heal within seven to 10 days, pretty right. much because of such right. rapid cell replication. Um, but in any case, they generally quote pretty similar loss rates among both procedures. They used to suggest that the CVS had a higher miscarriage rate than an amnio. But most of the newer data shows that actually it's pretty much the right. same. It's just the gestational age is different. Right. And there are more miscarriages at earlier gestations than later, no matter what you do. Right. So just to explain that. So what, what they end up doing, since they can't do that, that massive prospective study where they randomly divide, they take 5,000 women who had a CVS and they compare them to 5,000 women who didn't have a CVS and they look at the miscarriage rates. Now, obviously, those groups are different. The ones who chose a CVS tend to be older, tend to have more problems found in ultrasound and screening. And so they try to mathematically adjust for those differences in the groups. And that's why so many studies will come to somewhat different calculations. What is the additional risk of a CVS? And you know, the bullseye, some around one in 500. Some studies are around 200, one in 800, one 400, one 600. They all sort of fall there. But when you do that and do the same thing with amniocentesis, part of the problem is everybody in the CVS study, whether they had a CVS or didn't have a CVS, well, the higher miscarriage rate than the people in the amnio studies, because again, they're earlier in pregnancy. And if people miscarry, they tend to miscarry early. Right. The earlier yeah. you are, your greater yeah. rate of miscarriage, right. would, no matter what right. was done to so, you. So, yeah. So in comparing amnio and CVS, you have to sort of now adjust for that, how far pregnant were you when you had it done? And so there's a lot of math that has to be done in context of the studies, but what pretty much everyone has looked at this in the past 10, 20 years has seen that the risk for a CVS is either exactly the same or basically the same as an amnio, and we just can't tell the difference. And that's how we counsel people. We say it's probably about one in 500 for With each. With the caveat. Yeah, that yeah, you know what you're doing. That, right, you've done and the, sort of a, a learning curve. You yeah. plateau, and yeah. so you've done enough right. of somewhere between 50 to 100 to have done enough of these procedures, each vaginal or abdominal, and right. then that you maintain a certain amount on an annual basis to maintain that low rate, which is equal to that. Because most of these studies, particularly with CVS, are done in centers that do a lot of CVS. Right. And so these are very high volume places like ours at Carnegie. Right. They do a decent amount in the East Coast and so on. So I think it really depends. There are a couple of centers that do a lot. And then the 
lower the volume, even if you were trained to do them, you may not be as adept in getting, and you might get into more complications with CVS. And they did show that. Right. And so that's important. So I, I will, I'll tell people the safety that the, the risk of miscarriage from a CVS, from the procedure itself, is the same, give or take, as an AMU, about one in 500, assuming the doctor is skilled and has volume. And some people say, what's your loss rate? You know, it's 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 a hard question because number one, you don't always know if someone lost a pregnancy after procedure. They don't always call you and tell you. Number two, since it's rare in general, it's hard to compare if someone has one in 200 versus two in 200. That could just be whatever luck. Right. And so what I tell people, as long as the place does a lot of them, we assume that everyone's risk is about the same. So I, I wouldn't tell anyone that our risk is lower than another big center that does them. I'll say we're all similar, but right. you definitely want to make sure you're somewhere that has volume and does these. And the other interesting thing is for places that offer and are comfortable and are happy doing both CVS and Amnio, we end up doing many more CVSs than Amnios. Right. And the, the reason- But that's yeah. only a recent phenomenon yeah. in, and it's more of an East Coast, yeah. West Coast. Because we have options. Because we have more options, right. more testing, and people come, come early for prenatal care. Right. Which you have to come early for prenatal care to get a CVS. And right. And sort of set up, meet with the genetic counselor. And that's the other thing. Before any of these invasive procedures, our recommendation, and that's consistent with the American Society of Genetics as well as others, are to get to meet with a genetic counselor, which should be an unbiased person that's not, you know, doing the procedure to be able to, you know, counsel you about the information that you would like to get from this, as well as the fact that the pre-procedure risk counseling and, and so on. So you don't just get the doctor's perspective, but, um, but you get a genetic counselor, which um, can give you non-directive counseling right. which, that we think because most of the time doctors will say yeah go ahead and do it or don't do it they want your opinion whereas genetic counselors isn't giving her opinion at all she's just giving numbers and counseling about the risk so that kind of helps that it's more theoretically objective but sometimes can be more confusing <laughs> <laughs> it's hard i mean people you know sometimes have concerns with doctors are, are they just recommending procedures because they they just love doing procedures or because they're sort of narrow focused or maybe there's a financial incentive or you know whatever it might be and that's it's reasonable to be skeptical you know people are are you know complicated sure. and so you know we don't think we're making decisions that way but to have another person who's understands the genetics and helps you you know come to decision and if everyone sort of seems to be on the same page you feel more comfortable that's generally doing the it. industry yeah. standard and certainly in yeah. our unit we insist on, yeah. on that because i think it just creates a sense for patients that they've had more or less objective counseling and had the opportunity to ask more questions and more time and decide on the testing, given the complexity of what to test and how much, and then the insurance coverage of those tests right. and so on, I think people just need a lot of education. And uh, it's kind of a vulnerable time and, you know, it's hard information to understand if you don't have the background in it, even for people that have a background. I mean, we have doctors who are patients and all of a sudden, you know, they're not right. OBGYNs or geneticists and they're like, really, you can test for all of that. Right. <laughs> so, and so you get into even, even, and they have a background in medicine and biology and science, but you know, you start going into what the, what a microarray analysis can tell you. And then the drawbacks of some of these high-level molecular testing where you're potentially finding areas of unknown significance. Right. And for every test that gives you a very high resolution for certain conditions, it also can give you sequences in the DNA that we don't know what it means. Right. Because we all have variants of DNA that may be completely harmless. And again, it's just really important to know what tests are you sending 
and whether you want all this information and uh, proper counseling. So it's my big push that I think genetic counseling should be integral to part of the physician counseling as well. Right. That was definitely one of the themes that came up uh, in the podcast with uh, Tamar, that this, this concept that, you know, different people need different levels, but you know, involving genetic counseling, either from the doctor level, from a genetic counselor, or even a medical geneticist based on what's going on and how important that is, because it's, it is very confusing. And it's not just confusing because you're not a doctor. It's confusing to doctors too. It's confusing to OBGYNs. It's this knowledge base is expanding rapidly and it's hard to keep up with it. And knowledge is, is important. And I was going to get into sort of things that we, we have people do before the procedure and after. And so one of, as you said, the more, the more important things we do before in terms of preparation for the procedure is having that genetic counseling. So everyone's comfortable. What tests are we doing? You know, what are we ordering? What are we not ordering? When should I expect results? Who's going to give me the results? You know, those types of things. It's not a test that has to be done fasting. People can, you know, eat breakfast, eat lunch, right. come in, no problem. The only big thing that yeah. a lot of places request is sometimes they want a full bladder, which right. I never found that useful for an amniocentesis. So I right. find that that is archaic. Right. For a and plus CV- a pregnant bladder will fill up very quickly no matter right. what. <laughs> and for the CVS, you know, yeah, sometimes it makes a difference and we can wait, but the majority of the time it really doesn't matter that much. But in, even in our unit for at least the CVSs, we're still trying to tell them not to go to the bathroom before the procedure. Right. But sometimes a full bladder can make a difference. And then when we look, we make a decision whether right. it's actually a hindrance or help, right. uh, essentially. And sometimes you see this massive bladder, you're like, you got to go to the bathroom. Right? Correct. <laughs> and we can empty them and so on. And we empty it multiple times. Right. So, uh, and it always amazes me the about of yeah. bladder control people have. Yeah. <laughs> it, it amazes me, number one, the bladder control. Number two, they'll go and empty. And then five minutes later, I'm like, your bladder's full. They're like, ah, I just went. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And then so that's one thing. And then in terms of it's very unusual that people have to, you know, change any of their medications other than if they're on certain blood thinners, we'll tell them not to take it to stop that before right. the procedure. But again, that's really more like injectables and, you know, yeah, major I mean, blood thinners, not things, people, not things like baby some aspirin. Some people that really. comes up as baby aspirin, but I right. always sort of tell them if, if you know about it and you go off of it, that's fine. Go off right. it a couple of days before, right. at least like four or five days before. But overall, I've done it on... Patients with baby aspirin, there's been yeah. no untoward effects. The data doesn't show even doing major surgery with somebody on a baby aspirin, 81 milligrams a day, that, right. that has any increased risk for bleeding. So we really don't, we're not too worried about right. that. And what instructions do you give to people after the procedure, whether it's CVS or an amniocentesis? Well, we have a little handout right. we give to be consistent. And none of that stuff is actually proven mm-hmm. as far as any evidence to support that in right. trials. Um, and it's sort of more common practice. And we tell people to avoid exercise for about a week, try not to travel during the next week. And part of the travel and exercises, certainly the travel is that they're far away from their doctor or provider. And in doing that, if they were to have a problem, they'd be remote from care. But sometimes people travel to come to get these procedures right. from us. And so we kind of say, all right, forget it. Go back on the plane and get to Florida. <laughs> right. right. It's you not know, the so, actual travel. So it's, it's just, just logistically. Travel. It's just yeah. more logistical. Exercise only because if anything were to happen, people tend to blame themselves. But right. proof that that causes a problem. Right. Same thing with intercourse and things right. like that. But those are the main issues yeah. that we tell people for about a week to hold yeah. off on. And there's no, we did, we definitely don't tell them to go on bed rest after these procedures. Right. We tell people to take it easy. And particularly the first night, 24 to 48 hours, the uterus may be crampy. Some people cramp more than others. And interestingly enough, if they drink fluids, that seems to help. In the old days when I was training with some of the docs, they used to always tell people to have half a glass of wine. Uh, wine does relax as uterine muscle relaxant, alcohol, and it does relax either the mind or the body <laughs> or, or both. both. <laughs> and so some people still do that. There's no 
concern about fetal alcohol syndrome with half a glass of wine or anything right. like that at that gestational age. But that's not, you know, some right. people do, some people don't. That's a pretty yeah. minor issue. Yeah, I always tell people that the day of, you know, mostly take it easy. But I tell them it's tradition. It, it's if they, after the procedure, went out and went jogging, it's not like they're going to miscarry because of that. But if something, God forbid, happened, they don't want to feel guilty about it. So take it easy for that day. And then, like I said, just sort of normal activity, even no exercise for whatever certain amount of days. And as you said, this is all just tradition. It's not really based on anything that was ever and proven. And if you're going to drink wine, make sure it's a nice bottle. Of yeah, yeah. Like treat yourself. Vintage or yeah. something. Don't go into some cheap $10 bottle yeah, of wine. Yeah, treat yourself. So, right, right, procedure. Exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, find one and other share aspect. with the doctor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one other aspect I want to go into is for multiple pregnancies, Twin, twins mostly or triplets or quadruplets. And I know that when you were training, there was a lot more of the high order multiples because of our IVF colleagues were really, really on a roll. And so you would have the, you know, quadruplets and quintuplets. And are the procedures technically different in multiple pregnancies? You're just doing it multiple times or how does that work? There's two concerns that you have with these procedures. First of all, for higher order placentas, placentation, you have to make sure you're in the right sac or the right placenta and cross sampling error or sampling the same placenta or, or sac twice becomes concern. And so you really have to be very adept in mapping out the placenta right. locations. It's like and 3D mapping in your brain, basically. Correct. And yeah. then you draw it in actually three planes. Right. And between you and the sonographer, you have discussions of how the labeling goes. But it's very important because if you were to find there was a problem with one, right. or which one sometimes <laughs> done before reduction or not, right. those are things that you really want to plan out very accurately to know what information you're getting and from which which sack is which. And yeah, we used to do, the most I've done was quintuplets and I did CVSs on five of them. Some abdominal, some vaginal. Varying mixes. There are the other doctors done eight and sampled them. More. Right. Some, some you don't really need when you get higher up than that, unless there's a problem, you can, you know, they, I've done, you know, six, I've seen sextuplets, but there are doctors I know who back in the heyday, even before my training where you, they had 12 uh, oh, embryos and they had to reduce and so on. And then do a so, C oh, and then yeah, do yeah. CVSs on the remaining because they would do stage reduction CVS right. and then reduction again. So there were different techniques that people well, did. Yeah, we don't see that really. But no, we yeah. don't see it anymore because people used to do ovulation induction, particularly in PCOS right. patients, but now everything's IVF. And believe it or not, people talk about IVF and oh, the doctors just want to run to IVF, but IVF is really the most controlled way to get you a singleton pregnancy, right? Which is really the goal to mimic in infertile couples fertility, because using medications, you actually end up with right. a scenario where you have more problems when you have uncontrolled stimulation cycles. Right. I think that IVF with single embryo transfer, so we got to thank our REI guys yeah. because for the last, really, I'd say. I mean, there's been a big push in the last decade to really structure that, control that industry. And we're no longer seeing these higher order situations that lend themselves to all these type of conditions. But even in a twin gestation, I think doing invasive testing, you really want to have skill doing it because you can sample the same one twice or not. And so I think it's really important. I mean, multiple pregnancies and they're, they're less common and invasive testing in general is less common. So the people who do invasive testing on multiple pregnancies is obviously more of a rare occurrence. And it's not so much the technical aspect, right? Because you're really just doing the same procedure twice. It's making sure you know where you are, that they're different. And when you do get back the results, being able to go back and figure out which one it was. So obviously, if, if 
one is male, one is female. All right, that's easier, but sometimes it's okay, you know, left, upper, right, where the placenta is, you know, all these things. And so that's that's a really important thing. This was a great recap of invasive testing. And I think that one of the, you know, the main points is that uh, we said before is that it really is something that's an option for anybody. You don't have to sort of walk in quote unquote high risk. And it doesn't mean it is for everybody that everyone should do it, but everyone should know that it's an option. And they should we, know what, what are they going to get? And what they should they know understand? what genetic testing. I mean, I'm always, I've always been a big fan, even though insurance companies don't cover it, that I believe that, gen- that genetics has advanced so much in the ability to diagnose things and test for certain things that ideally everybody should get genetic counseling. And even though insurance doesn't cover it, it really would be ideal if we could have a, you know, people automatically at the first visit in prenatal care, they get a link to a website where they basically listen to genetic counselor talk about genetic testing and basic testing and what options they have and what can they test for. Right. And then people can choose because insurance may or may not cover these things, but they may want to know this stuff. And ideally, even in a non-pregnant state, in the preconception period where they're less vested and there's a lot less anxiety, because it's hard to get hit with so much information that first visit about all these other things you're supposed to do in pregnancy and not. But really, everybody should be educated on advances in genetics, what genetic testing is available, what's non-invasive testing, what can it give you, what information it doesn't give you, and whether you want to avail yourself to that information. And I think that's just really important for young people to really keep up with this if they're planning on a pregnancy. And pregnancy planning is really important. There's a lot of things you'd want to do before you get pregnant to have a plan in mind and be optimal in your care, optimal BMI, optimal nutrition status, optimal other health variables. So the preconception visit with an OBGYN and these discussions is actually very valuable. Right. And if someone doesn't have that opportunity or their website doesn't exist, they now have a mini series of podcasts to turn to, to listen. There you go. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Andre, thanks for coming on Healthful Woman. Obviously, you'll be on many times if we can ever find a time to sit in the same room at the same time together. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.